Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, I may have a few new people listening to the podcast, those who have been reading me on The Dispatch. I'm currently working on a few more pieces for them, so you can look for me there as well. So this week, I wrote about, in my columns for the Conservative Institute, I covered Bernie Sanders' defense of China during the Democratic debate, as well as some thoughts that I had after that debate, the one where there was no audience in the CNN studios. I talked about why people need to stop scaring everyone with these COVID-19 models. You may have seen these coronavirus models going around that predict millions of people either being infected or dying. I think this is scaremongering, and these need to be stopped being passed around, and people need to focus more on real data because there is some good news if you look at that. In the newsletter, I wrote about how all the testing numbers that we're seeing. I wrote about where we need to get on a testing front and how to read these testing numbers, as well as talking through why we need to get more mass testing out. And then, of course, if you read me at the Dispatch this week, you read about how I, the story, the story I wrote was about Bernie Sanders and why his movement is sort of splitting up. There's this split between regular Marxism and a new woke Marxism. So if you haven't read that, make sure to go check that out. Send them a like or a comment. Let them know that you liked me having them there. So if any of that interests you, as normal, or you can go after the show and sign up and get all of this in your email inbox at the end of each week at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. That's just the easiest way to get my columns and analysis to you. There's an easy sign-up link there, so you can click on that and sign up and get it each week. It had a link to all of those columns, including both the Conservative Institute and the Dispatch. And finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it everywhere, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm, and I look forward to reading and hearing more from you guys in those comments. All right, so in this week's show, there's one topic. You could guess it coming in this week because, for me, it's the second week of quarantine, and so that means there's really only thing, one thing to talk about because it's dominating absolutely every aspect of politics, and that is the coronavirus, otherwise known as COVID-19. COVID-19 is what the Associated Press uses in its official style guidebook, which is why you've seen a switch in most media organizations to calling it that. Most of them work off the Associated Press style book for journalists. That's what they decided to call it, and being the most scientific-sounding name for it. And so that's why you're seeing most media outlets settled into that, or calling it more generically the coronavirus. And that's what we're going to talk through this week, focusing mainly on just updates, as I'm going to press here, hotspots, what to read about the different hotspots because they're not all they shouldn't all be taken the same. And then I'm going to talk through the stimulus legislation in Congress that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and the Democrats have just decided to spike just before I went to record here. And so I'm going to talk through, as I drop my pen, I'm going to talk through why that legislation failed and what's going to happen moving forward. So we're going to jump right in this week talking about an update generically about the coronavirus, talking about 
where, where we stand just numbers wise. So I grabbed these numbers from the COVID tracking project, which you can either Google or I'm going to link to it in the show notes. It's the best source that I've seen. I know you can go a few other places. Uh, Our World in Data is a good website for this. And I believe John Hopkins University has also been sourcing various testing numbers. But the most open source form I've seen is the COVID tracking project. And they're showing... Right now, we have 228,216 tests run as I'm going to press here at 9.30 p.m. Central late Sunday. So almost 230,000 tests have been run. Of those, 31,888, so almost 32,000, are positive. That means the remaining 225,000 are negative. So... Of that 31, 32,000 that are positive, it's important to note, though, they're not scattered about equally. They're in mostly three hot spots, and that's in New York, Washington, and California. We'll talk about more of those in a second. But in reality, the big hot spot right now is in New York because 15,000, according to the New York Times, 15,000 of these tests are positive. So they are the one area in the United States where it's not just a hot spot. This does run the risk of overwhelming their hospital system just because of the pure volume of positive tests that they have. Now, this spike in in positive tests is good because we have not been testing anywhere near enough. Right now, the last two days, if you run the numbers, we've tested around 45,000 people. I thought by today we would be closer to 50,000, and for some reason we sort of stalled out today around the same amount that we were yesterday, so it's around 45,000. We need to be closer to 100 to 120,000 people a day being tested for this thing. And the reason for that is that if you're hitting 120,000 people, you are much closer to being able to hit South Korea numbers, and the way they measure that is the number of tests per capita. And that means you're just you're hitting a broad swath of the population. And so our testing numbers that we have to hit are much higher on a daily basis than South Korea. So we're working to get there, and we certainly have the capacity to get there. It's just a matter of matching up the tests to these different part regions of the United States, figuring out and getting everyone who wants to get tested. That's what you really need to do. Test everyone who wants to be tested because you're going to find both false positives and false negatives. I was talking to a friend yesterday talking about how a friend that she had was currently in the hospital on a on a ventilator and this person tested negative and the hospital is convinced this person has the coronavirus but they have a negative test, and so they're running a second one. So what we need to be able to do is not just run one test on people, but have the ability to go back and retest some of these people who may have had a false negative. We want to get an exact idea of how many people have this virus because it spreads so prolifically. What South Korea did, and why everyone keeps harping on this, is that they tested everybody that they could to identify not just the people who were showing symptoms, because that's obviously important, but you wanted to identify people who were asymptomatic, people who had the virus and could spread it, but weren't showing any symptoms. Because if you're not showing any symptoms, you might just walk around in public, and that would make you become the person who spreads the virus everywhere else. We are unsure at this stage how bad the asymptomatic problem is with this virus. We're not sure how many people can simply be carriers 
but not show symptoms because that's the most dangerous thing. If you can have the virus but not show symptoms, you're more likely to go out and infect other people. So what South Korea did is that they tested, found anyone who tested positive, and then had them self-isolate and self-quarantine. Because if you can get those people out of the population, you're going to dramatically decrease the spread of this virus and its ability to spread to people who can't handle this thing in their system. So that's where we're working right now. That's why I keep harping on testing. That's why all the experts keep harping on testing, because we have to figure out who has it, and then get them to self-isolate to prevent this from spreading any faster. Because if you can do that, you can go a long way towards helping our health system slow this thing down and work our way towards better treatments and vaccines in the end. So that's the reason why we're focusing on testing. The three hot spots that we have right now are New York, Washington, and California, as I just said. New York is the biggest of those hot spots. They have almost half of all cases in the United States. So it's not, when you're looking at all the, there's one chart that people keep sharing, and it's from the Financial Times out of the UK. They keep doing this country by country comparison, and you can do that for some of these smaller countries, places like the UK or South Korea and some of these other places. You can do that. In the United States, it's not a smart idea to do that because the outbreak here is not spread evenly. So where I live in Nashville, we just found out that we have a little over 500 cases. And while that's very serious, that's not going to overwhelm our hospital system here. And that's across the entire state. Davidson County, where Nashville sits, has about 100, between 150 to 200. I have to go back and check how many. But anyway, that's, that's easily sustainable for a mid-sized city hospital place like Nashville. We have a lot of hospitals, both public and private. In New York City, even though it is the largest city in the United States, it doesn't matter how big your popula- how big your hospital population is. If you have an influx of people coming in, if you have 15,000 people with this virus and you know just a small percentage of that needs hospitalization, that's going to overwhelm an already pretty busy hospital system. And so it's important when you're breaking this down to look at these three hotspots and not count the country overall, because if you just counted New York by itself, it would be one of the top countries in the world with this disease without the rest of the United States. So that is inflating our overall country numbers. And so New York is the worst. They've got that's the reason why you're seeing Andrew Cuomo, the governor, out there every day, and he's he's basically taken over New York City in particular because Mayor Bill De Blasio has just been awful in dealing with this disaster. He had several several aides, several of the New York papers are reporting, who threatened to quit his administration because he refused to address the situation. And while Cuomo and De Blasio are both Democrats that neither of them like each other. De Blasio is a Bernie Sanders-style socialist pretty openly, and Cuomo's just your run-of-the-mill average Democrat running the entire state. Cuomo, by my, by my look, has done a fantastic job trying to get everything up to line and getting this thing controlled and contained, and he's having to cover up a lot of the problems that de Blasio left because he didn't want to shut down the schools, parks, bars, anything. De Blasio did not want to do the things necessary to slow the spread of the virus in New York. And when you're talking about one of the most dense cities in the United States— this is of utmost importance. This is our most dense city. If that's the reason it spread so quickly, the city of Wuhan is a technically, or more people live there than New York City. 
if you can believe that. And it's only like the fourth or fifth biggest city in all of China. So when you're talking about a virus like this hitting a big city, it's much easier to spread in a densely populated city. So you have to get it under control here. And what Andrew Cuomo is doing, and he's got a mountain in front of him, and he's doing a lot of work on that, is trying to get past the hole dug for him by Bill de Blasio. So New York is easily the worst hotspot of these three. People really need to follow public officials' advice there to help flatten the curve in that city because they just have so many people, and with just a a fraction of those 15,000 going to the hospital, it is going to overwhelm them. They do not need a much higher spike to hit their system. So if that's that's New York. They're the worst spot. That's where, why they're in the news. You know, all national journalists live there, so that's why they're also now focused on this and treating it as the, the dire situation that it is because all these newspapers and journalists, they all live there. And that leaves the other two hotspots of California and Washington. California is a little harder to read. Uh, my, my view on these three hotspots is, is pretty similar to Nate Silver's at 538, and he sees that New York is obviously the hotspot. If you're looking for a place that could become another Italy, it is New York. So it, it, getting that under control is of utmost importance. California is a little bit different because they have a high number of cases, but we're not sure data-wise just how many people have it and whether or not what's happening with their curve. The data from them has been up and down, so it's worth watching. There's enough there to call it a hot spot, but we're not entirely sure right now what to make of the numbers out of California, just that they have a lot of cases, and it's unclear whether or not they're being swamped or whether more are coming. And that leaves Washington, which has Seattle. And there's actually good news here, because while there continues to they continue to have more cases and more people in the hospital, the rate at which this people are going in has slowed down dramatically. And it's it's basically they have flattened the curve there. Early in the week, we were looking at them thinking, hey, this may be a good model for the rest of the country. And it appears that's going to be the case because there's been no spikes. There has been no rush towards the hospitals since they originally got everything taken care of. So social distancing there, which sort of happened a little earlier there than the rest of the country, seems to have slowed the spread of the virus down there. So very good news out of Washington. And if they are able to control the spread of the virus, that that means there's good news for the rest of the country. If you're in some of these mid-sized cities like Nashville, Atlanta, New Orleans, and some of these other places... It's well worth looking at, at Seattle as the the way to do this because they are, were able to flatten the curve, which you've heard everybody say they want to do, and so that means that you know the the processes are working and the virus is slowing down there. Everything, and so this is giving us a chance to move resources to these places, get masks, um, work on treatments and other things, so that all these hospitals don't get. Overwhelmed. That is the key feature here. We do not want the healthcare system overwhelmed. And if you give, you know, the capitalist system and the supply chain the chance to catch up here, we're going to be able to get all the resources these hospitals need. They will not be playing catch up if we're able to give both our healthcare system and the supply chain a chance to catch up here. Because if that happens, we won't need to social distance as much because we'll be able to identify who has the virus and keep them indoors. So Washington is good news. Um, so keep watching this data because it's showing that social distancing and all these these different theories are working. 
Washington is obviously the goal here that we all want to get to, and we need the rest of the country to follow suit. The one thing to follow here, and the state that does trouble me, is Florida, because it appears Florida may be going through sort of a delayed reaction here to where there were a few cases early on, but we were unsure just of how many, and it looks like, because of all the spring breakers who went down there, that there may be this delay where some of them who may have had it, they may have carried it down there. And since Florida has a high retirement population, if this there is a sort of delayed reaction there where this is just now beginning to work its way through Florida, we could see them spike here in the next week, week and a half, and be a little bit behind the rest of the country. And we're a little bit unsure about that because there are some studies, and I do emphasize some here, because peer review, because this is so new, peer review isn't really really, really an issue so far because people haven't been able to ascertain whether or not some of these studies, studies are accurate. But some studies out of China showed that the virus slowed down and was less prevalent in places that were hot and humid. So as we head into you know southern summer, places like Tennessee or Florida that are going to get real humid and real hot, that may, for whatever reason, slow this down. Not really sure if that's the case. We're going to find out here in the next month or two, but it could be good news for Florida that even if there is this delay, if things heat up down there, it could mean that the virus will have less of an impact than thought. So that's sort of an overview of all the states so far. There's some good news, there's some bad news. This next week is really key because there's always a delay. And when the when you, so when you put in social distancing and some of these other mitigation things, there's always a delay between when you put those in place and when you start to see a flattening of the curve. So we started really putting all these measures in place last weekend, and we haven't seen a flattening of the curve yet. But what I think you're going to see is that in some of these cities, Washington is an example, because this past week they were the ones who showed that they were flattening it. What we should be able to see is that this next week, as this delay is no longer a problem, that we should see some of these cities flatten out, where the infection, this testing rates should continue to go up, but the infection rate should become steady, where we're not adding on huge numbers of people with the virus. And that's what you want. People are still going to get it because it's a very infectious disease, but if you can slow it down just enough, it makes it manageable. And that's where we've got to get to, is manageable. And there are some signs that we're getting there. I think you're going to see towards the end of this week that's going to start playing into the where all some of these other cities are going to start showing that they're like Washington. And if that's the case, it's going to change our national strategy. Because if we can get the hot spots under control and only have a few of them, that means the rest of the country doesn't have to follow as a strict economic social distancing policies because this this economic hit we're going to get into here we're talking about the legislation it's pretty steep for everyone some people are talking about this being you know a 9 to 18 month thing of dealing with this virus and while that may be true you can't shut down this country for 9 months or more in fact shutting it down for any more than the 2 weeks that we're doing right now is really stretching things thin People can only go so far like this because there's just simply not a remote enough remote work for everyone, and these restaurants and travel companies and airlines cannot exist if we are going to continue to have the entire economy shut down to this extent. 
Two weeks is one thing. Three weeks is another. Three to six months, that's a whole other ball of wax where you're talking about a massive disruption to the economy. And if that happens, you are talking about a recession. And if we go that far, you're also talking depression territory because you're going to wipe out entire sectors of the economy as other sectors try to make up for that. So these two weeks are very key, especially this next one. We need to see at the end of this next week that the curve is flattening and that we can start to let certain areas of the country go back to no- to somewhat normal. You're still going to have to wash your hands. You're still going to have to practice social distancing in public. But if you can keep these hot spots tamped down, you can start to relax some of these restrictions to allow the economy to come back. Because eventually you're going to get to this scenario where you're going to have to choose whether or not you want to deal with the virus or deal with a broken economy. No one on any side of this, except for maybe Nancy Pelosi, wants a broken economy, especially in an election year. Everyone wants this to work its way through the system. So that's the big choice at the end of this next week. And some some analysts have said, you know, we can wait till Labor Day or Memorial Day or maybe Easter. And I really think it's the end of this next week going into April. Everyone's committed, all of society, to getting to the 1st of April with this. And I think you can't ask for much more from everyone because there there's just too much that people are going to have to take economically in order to get things turned around. And we're going to get more into that here in a second, talking through this stimulus legislation. But first, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk through that. And we're back talking about the coronavirus legislation and the decision of Democrats to block this bill. Now you're going to see some spin coming out this next week and probably all day tomorrow about this bill because everything went down late Sunday evening. Democrats decided to block this stimulus bill and they did so after Nancy Pelosi, who had been out of town in Washington all week on vacation, came back in today and said that this deal whatever it was, because we know she didn't, hadn't seen it, was dead on arrival. She was not going to vote for it. And that immediately changed the tenor of Democratic senators who went from working with Senate Republicans to pass this piece of legislation to immediately being opposed to the very bill that they were writing. There were about eight Democratic senators working with another eight Republican senators. Chuck Schumer, Democratic leader, was a part of this contingent. They were working with other Republicans, Marco Rubio among them, and also um, part of the White House had sent over about the same amount. So there's about eight people from each faction here, the, the Senate, both sides of the Senate, and also the White House, and they were hammering out a deal that they could all come to and agree with. And... Late Saturday, they had hit on a lot of agreement and bipartisanship of coming and hitting and, and working out a lot of the kinks. There were problems with it. I was blasting the bill on Saturday, on Friday and Saturday, actually, because Republicans were talking about sending out checks to Americans and having these be conditioned through means testing or 2018 tax returns, where if you had a certain amount of income, either you were too low or too high, you would not get as much. So people who paid nothing in federal taxes would only get around $600. But if you got within the range of paying some, or I believe the number was 75000 or below, you, in income, 
you got the full check of $1,200 per adult, and it was either $250 or $500 per a kid, and then it went down as you made more and more income. Now, this is, as I said at the time on Twitter, this was just a flat-out ridiculous offer by Senate Republicans, and I have no idea why they brought such a thing out. Because the key here is the federal government is asking absolutely everyone, absolutely everyone across the entire economy to not go out, to stay at home. If you can do remote work, you're in good shape. But if you don't have remote work or you work at some of these bars or restaurants or anything like that, you've got to stay home. And so the government wants everybody staying home. This is not a recession where businesses are going under. This is a mandated stop of economic activity from the government to help prevent the spread of this disease. And so if you want people to do that, that's fine. But that also means they aren't making a paycheck during this time. The first proposal made by the Trump administration was that they were going to offer a payroll tax cut, basically send that down the payroll tax. If you look at your pay stub, if you get one, you'll see how much you pay in that, but basically send that down to zero. So you would get that from your paycheck at the end of each cycle, and they were going to make sure so that didn't count against you, I believe, next year. But the point everyone made is that if you do that, that only applies to people who are able to make a paycheck during these two or three weeks that we're doing this mandatory shutdown. And so if you don't do that, you don't get any benefit from this tax cut. So the easiest way to do this is just to cut checks to people to get them to stay home, to offset things like rent, food, and other things that people are having to deal with while they get no paychecks from their work. Because, And that's what you have to do here. Now, they talked about doing means testing, and there's just what means testing is is that you look at a person's income and you give them the check based on how much they're making. And all of this is just, it, it doesn't work. It's utter nonsense. If you want people to stay home, the fastest way to do this is to cut everyone a check, even if you're cutting to rich people, and even if you're cutting a check to people who don't pay nothing in federal income tax, just cut a check. $1,000, I mean, I would, at the time I was saying $1,000, it looks like they're settling in around $1,200, $1,200 per adult, and then $500 per kid in a household. So jointly, you could get $2,400 as a married couple and another $250 to $500 per kid. So this could be potentially very helpful in offsetting things like a mortgage mortgage, and any family income for food and other things like that. So that's the goal here, to help offset the loss in income that you're, you're forcing people to take. In a recession, when you're doing a bailout, you're, you're oftentimes you're bailing out failed firms and no one likes that because you're bailing out the losers of this. That's not what's happening here. This is not socialism. You're paying people to stay home. And in my mind, the way I, the way I look at this is that if you want this to happen, you have to pay people because otherwise people have to find other work to make ends meet. And they may be able to do that if they jump into some of these grocery business lines or become a trucker because all these different areas are hiring or you know they get hired by Walmart or Amazon who combined are going to are going to hire around 250,000 people but even with that that's not going to be enough to offset the job losses we're expecting goldman sachs estimates that you're going to see 2 to 3 million people lose their jobs here and so you've got to offset that you've got to get these people a chance to get back on their feet because they can't work it's not that they want to work and can't find work it's that they literally 
cannot work. And you've got to offset that key component there. So the Republicans' plan, as it initially was, was to means test everybody. And I just thought that was ridiculous because then you have people who have different costs of living and in different areas. You have people who have different family structures. There's just so many different variables that go into figuring out whether or not a person is means tested correctly to get a check that it's not worth it. And the other reason that you want to do it, could have checked everyone, is that it keeps everybody in the same boat. So everybody views themselves as being in this together. And the thing that people talk about this as being a bad idea is that you're, you're inevitably going to be cutting this check to people who are rich and don't need it. And I fully acknowledge that. But that's fine. If you don't want people to do that, then encourage some sort of social action where people are going to give that back voluntarily through charitable means. You can also write a version of a tax law that claws that money back next year where you tax these people who didn't need it at certain income levels. You can do any number of things along that line. But to get the checks out now and to not focus on using old tax returns, because if you're going to do means testing, you have to use tax returns, and the only viable ones you have are for 2018, and that's two years ago now, and so none of that tax information is going to apply to people right now. You could have lost your job. You could have had all kinds of major life changes that make your tax situation different now than it was in 2018. So the easiest way, the fastest way, is just to cut everyone a check. And the way I would do it was just... would. My plan for this is very simple. Cut a $1,200 check for every adult in America. Cut another $500 check for every child that is in a household. After that... You do, you do that repeated, repeatedly until this calms down. So if you have to do another shutdown uh, in, in April or some other time, you cut that check again. And I think you should, do, you should focus on doing this for the next three months to ensure people have some kind of income until they're able to get reemployed. Because even if, even if this shutdown ends at the end of this week and everybody goes back to work, it's still going to take time for business in a lot of these different sectors, for, for airlines, for restaurants, and any of these other places, it's going to take time for these places to get back to normal. So if you're a waiter or a waitress, depending, and depending on tips, you're just flat out not going to get tips right now because you're not going to get the foot traffic in some of these restaurants. So the key is we're stuck having to cut this type of check for the next three months because you have to cover what people are going to be going through for the next several months here. Because even if this ends now or the beginning of April, you've got to allow for this lag time so people are covered for that period of time. And on the back side, if you, if you need a way to say they're going to pay for it, just go after higher tariffs on China and say that they're going to end up paying for it. If, if Trump needs a political reason to say it, just say that you're going to up the trade war with China and make them pay for what they're putting America through. Because this is China's fault. They knew about this in December, they hid the evidence, and now thousands of people are dying and the economy is being wrecked across the world because of what they did. The decisions that China made are wrecking the world economy and killing thousands of people. That is why we're here right now. And if you go and look at any of their propaganda outlets, they're saying the opposite. You can go to their outlets right now and watch people blame the United States for this virus and blame U.S. soldiers for releasing this on Chinese people. That's what they're saying right now. That is how belligerent China is to this situation. That is how little they care about the global impact that they're having, that they are spreading ru rumors and propaganda blaming the United States for what happened. That's who we're dealing with here. So I have 
no qualms on the backside of this, of Donald Trump stepping back in and ratcheting down on China and saying, you're going to pay for what you just put us and the rest of the world through. And so that, that's a very simple way to do this. That's not what's going to happen. They're going to find some way to muck this up on the Republican side. They've been fighting over how much they're going to pay people. On the Democratic side, they've bizarrely focused in on various kinds of bailouts. They, they've been very squeamish about that, even though all of these so far, there's been no gifts on the bailout side. It's been all loans. I think one of the main things they wanted is that they claimed that they wanted no stock buybacks. So that means that if a corporation gets this bailout money, they can't use that to then buy their back their own stock to inflate their stock price. And I'm fine with that rule, but it's not a reason to reject this because that's already in the bill. And so the reason that they're rejecting this is it's, it's all made up because the things that they're claiming that they want are already in there. The mandated sick leave pay that they want, which wouldn't cover very many people, the New York Times was blasting Democrats Nancy Pelosi in one of their editorials this past week because the mandated sick pay leave that they put together would only cover 20% of people out there. And Democrats are very specifically exempting large corporations from this. So the mandated sick pay portion of this would only cover small businesses and really tighten down hard on them. So this would end up, that by itself would end up putting some people out of business because they wouldn't be able to pay for it. And on the flip side, Democrats have decided to exempt corporations like McDonald's, uh, Walgreens, and others. And bizarrely, I have no idea why they're doing it. You would think that if they were going to do this, they would go full hog and cover everyone, but they've decided not to do that. As an aside here, I think it's actually kind of interesting to watch that because there's been sort of this crossing of paths for the Republicans and Democratic Party. Because right now, Republicans represent blue-collar America and the working class. Whether or not they want to or not, that's where they are. Donald Trump has made them that party. And in turn, if you're looking at the Democratic Party, all these large banks and corporations fully and completely support them. That's why people like Hillary Clinton were getting paid to go speak at Goldman Sachs. All these big businesses, big banks, and big corporations have all lined up behind the Democratic Party. And so it's this really weird and bizarre trend where everybody's still claiming these old positions that they had before this switch, but in reality, the switch has happened, and, and everybody's interests are lined up on different sides of the political aisle. So it's very interesting to watch in this stimulus bill Democrats are claiming that they're they're pushing for workers' rights, but in reality, th that's not happening at all. A lot of their interests are lining up with what some of these big corporations want. So it's very interesting to watch that take place. Again, I think this is very simple. If you're going to do the bailout, you can make that condition on the stock buybacks for them and make them focus on on covering their employees, covering their expenses, and making sure they don't go under due to debt. I think that's all very easy. You can also have a provision for low to no interest loans to small businesses to ensure that they are able to continue their businesses and they be able to get out on the other side. Because this is not a typical situation where you're looking at a recession where there's a downturn in the economy and you're trying to overcome that. This is a pandemic. So this is not a typical situation where a recession, you're just trying to ride through a recession. This is something where a black swan event is triggering something in the economy, and so you're trying to, you know what it could lead to. Your economy is strong without this event. If we didn't have this coronavirus, our economy would be clicking along just fine. There's not an underlying problem wrong with it yet. But 
there are underlying things that the coronavirus can trigger to make this a bigger meltdown. And so if you can get ahead of that, you can stop this from becoming a full-blown recession again. And that's the purpose of this. This is not stimulus spending that you would look at in a, in a typical situation. This is a far different situation than any prior recession, much different from 08, and anything prior to that. So we're trying to head off a recession. We know for this quarter that growth is going to be negative, and so that could put us in a technical recession. But if you can avoid the part where people start, or businesses in particular, start going under and start going bankrupt because they're being forced to stay, forced to not do any business because of a government mandate, that's going to wreck the economy. So this is a very different set of circumstances where we're trying to measure this, this, this balance here between what are the economic impacts, because we're very specifically wrecking our economy, very specifically in order to save lives. But eventually, that is going to start tipping in the other direction, where the harm we're doing to the economy is going to start outweighing the number of lives that we're going to be saving. So you have to get to a point where you flatten the curve to such an extent that the health system can handle the disease that it's there, and then turn around and reopen the economy to allow it to grow and start recovering. And that's going to take time, no matter what we do here. So... That's why this stimulus plan is in place. That's why it's a disgrace that Democrats have nuked this because we need these checks going out immediately because we're expecting this this very week, this past week, around two to three million people are going to apply for unemployment insurance and unemployment benefits. That would be the single largest surge that we have ever seen. Even going back to the recession, I'll link to the Goldman Sachs piece that that, that talked about this. That would be the single largest spike we've ever seen. It's much larger than any other recession we've ever seen because we're knocking out entire industries. Usually when a recession hits, even if it, it hits the entire economy like 08 did, it's still not as bad as that. You have to control all these different industries that are going under, but you can still manage some of the main things that are happening. That's not the case here. This is system-wide, and if you allow it to go much further, you are looking at a full-blown recession. There is the non-zero percent chance that you can have a recession from this, but I do believe if we can get the stimulus through, we can avoid that. So this is not a typical recession. That's why we need this stimulus legislation, because we're trying to avoid just just the the ripple effects from the coronavirus. Because if you don't, it's going to be very, very bad. So like I said, there is a simple plan to this. I think you just cut everyone a check, call a day, say you're going to make China pay for it. That can be the political play for Trump. And then if you want to get it back from these rich people, either lead a social media campaign to convince them to donate that money to charitable organizations or hospitals that need the extra money, or you can just get it back through tax, clone it back through taxes. But if you don't do this, and I do mean this very seriously, if you don't do this and you let Democrats wreck this, you're risking a very large populist political backlash to this. There is going to be, if people feel like their government did not have shut them all down and forced them from not working, and then on the back side of that did not compensate them for that time and left them out to dry and wrecked their lives for two or three weeks... The political ramifications of that will make Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and the election of Donald Trump look like a normal occurrence in American politics. If you want extreme swings in this country, 
let the Democrats wreck this and not get any stimulus legislation through. The reverberations from that would dramatically change the course of this country. That's how you get a President Bernie Sanders. That's how you get a President Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's how you get someone even more extreme and out there than Donald Trump, is that you make people feel like they were entirely and totally betrayed by their political leaders in a time of crisis. We've seen these swings back and forth happen continually since 2010 in particular, where you saw Obama come in after the wave elections of 2006 and 2008, where people looked at the economy, looked at what happened under George W. Bush, and said, this is bad, we need change. And so they swept Democrats into power. Democrats had so much power that they overstepped their mandate, because all the public really wanted was help at that stage. They didn't want the dramatic earthquake-shaking change that Obama wanted to give everyone. And that led to the massive wave elections of 2010 and 2014, where Republicans just dominated Democrats up and down the ticket in midterm elections. Obama was able to win a narrow race, but the seeds for what happened in 2016 were definitely sown in 2012. I don't think you get President Trump if you let Romney win that election. So it it is... We are teetering on a very dangerous edge here where we need our politicians to step up and fix the problem that is here, because while this stimulus plan is not socialist, if you don't push this through, the populist backlash could lead to socialism because it's going to so anger people that they will vote for anyone that's willing to burn down the system that betrayed them at the peak of this crisis. Because this is the government purposely tanking the economy to save people's lives. That is a good thing, objectively. But if you you over... If you overplay that hand, you risk wrecking the economy in such a way that people are going to say, this price is too high to bear, and we do not want to pay it moving forward. So there's there's a lot of things that are taking place here. There are a lot of people who you, you don't want them to go through bankruptcy. You don't want their debt to go belly side up. You don't want them to not be able to pay rent or pay their mortgages. You need to cut these checks to make sure that people's lives, while they are disrupted for these next two or three weeks, they're not so disrupted financially that their lives are wrecked and ruined for a very long time. The great It took a long time for people to get out from under the rubble of the Great Recession. Some people would say we're still suffering the setbacks from that, and that was 12, year, 12 13 years ago that happened, and we're still suffering from the ramifications of that one recession. People still so genuinely call this a recovery period. So if you have this situation, and I've, I've written about it in the newsletter, talking about how there's a lot of corporate debt out there, if you let this get out of hand, you're risking a, a several things. You're, you're risking you know, a greater recession, potentially a depression, if you really let this get out of hand. I don't think that's truly in the cards because I think eventually you're going to see stimulus push through, but that is the risk. And then the much broader risk is political, where people feel betrayed on both sides of the political aisle by their political elites, and they look for ways to burn down all the people that have betrayed them up until this point. So... That's the threat here, and I don't mean to sound too dire here. I know that sounds dire, but that's that's if you're trying to you know stretch and look at the full ramifications of what can happen. There are the economic ones, which I've I've talked about here, I've written about in the newsletter, and then there's also these political ones because 
we're in a populist moment in both sides of the party. You have this Bernie Sanders side of the party, and you have this happening in the, in the Republican side. And the thing about populist movements is that if you allow them to go unchecked, they will change the face of your country. And so you have to get ahead of them. So that's all my thoughts for that, and that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute. Also look for me at the Dispatch. I'm going to be sending them in a few more things. And the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. So if you sign up for that, you will get that and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again. But until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week. And I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you.